Welcome back to another episode of the Outsider Sports Baseball Podcast. Corey Jason, joined by, again, a full house, Ben Mandel, Dylan Mel, John Pauline. And we're just going to get right into it this holiday weekend, 4th of July this week. And speaking of holidays, last Wednesday is going to be one in Major League history for a long time. The 24th ever perfect game was pitched by Domingo Herman of the New York Yankees. I don't know if you guys were watching. I certainly was late at night against Oakland. I was out with my friends. We were uh, we went to the batting cages. I went to Top Golf, and Top Golf. You know they didn't have the Yes Network on the TVs. It just wasn't a channel they carried. So I have my phone set up at the table while we're all taking our turns golfing, watching the game. Me, this other Yankee fan, and two uh, two Met fans. So the Met fans are actually rooting against it to happen. But it was still pretty cool, pretty fun. Ended up listening on the car ride home. Got home to watch the uh, the end of the eighth and then the ninth inning. The game didn't end too late, about twelve thirty Eastern, and it was just incredible. The last perfect game that the Yankees threw was in nineteen ninety nine. David Cohn, and then the last Major League Baseball perfect game was King Felix back in August of twenty twelve. I didn't watch either of those games. So being able to watch perfection, especially as a Yankee fan, it was amazing. Did you guys watch it? What What did you think while watching it? Yeah, so unfortunately, I don't have um, the Yes Network. So I was um, watching it on kind of a combination of Twitter highlights, uh, ESPN Gamecast, etc. Um, but yeah. If you'd given me a bingo card at the start of the season, I would not have put Domingo Herman perfect game on there. Yet here we are. Uh, it just shows you really the talent of these major league pitchers that on any given night, you know, a guy can go off. And Herman did it with three pitches, really, fastball, changeup, and curveball. And his curveball was cooking that night and had some real reliance. And maybe you could say, oh, it was against the A's, so it doesn't really count that well. But it's still major league comp uh, competition and to throw a perfect game is just an achievement unlike any other for a pitcher in my opinion and Herman having this come two days on the wake of uh, the death of his uncle that's why a lot of people saw him pointing to the sky I believe and it was just overall really inspirational moment really great to see and hopefully it's the start of something for Herman and the Yankees to really get going right after and right into all-star break yeah, and look, Dylan, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. You you can't, you can never predict perfect games. And unfortunately, I also did not see this game. I also do not have Yes Network. Uh, but at the same time, I probably wasn't going to watch a Yankee game anyway. I haven't really been keeping up with the Mets too much as much. I've just been watching baseball as a whole. And, you know, whenever you see a perfect game, it's it's special. And I remember watching the Mark Burley perfect game. That's actually the only one I've ever watched. And I just remember the catch at the wall, you know, robbing a home run. It was uh, Jermaine Die, right? Yes, it was Jermaine Die. And, you know, that that was that's the perfect game I watched. I didn't get to see King Felix. I didn't see Herman. But when it happens, it's so rare. You know, it really got to a point where, you know, with starting pitchers not going that deep into games anymore, you wondered, is it ever going to happen again? Herman proved that, you know, as much as the game changes, some things never die. 
and, you know, getting to see a perfect game, that's, you know, just to see it happen, that's fantastic. And, you know, to Corey's point about the Mets fans rooting against it, I hate to hate to admit it, but that sounds like a typical Mets fan. I was not rooting against it. I do root for great things to happen, but that that does sound on par for the Mets fan base. Now, unlike uh, you two, I actually have Yes Network, but I still didn't watch it. I didn't even know he was like in contention to pitch a perfect game until I got the notification on my phone that said he, you know, pitched one. I was uh, too busy playing video games and doing other stuff. Didn't have any idea. But I, I, it is interesting because I think it's been a while since the last perfect game. And like Ben was saying, with the way pitchers go now, it just seems like it's going to be rarer and rarer going forward. And this might, you might not see another perfect game years to come or maybe ever again. Like, who knows? And I would also complain, I think this is like the first perfect game with the pitch clock, the first like season with the pitch clock implemented, and there's a perfect game. So that's, I think that's pretty cool too. Yeah. John, you not knowing until after it happened, I, I want to ask Dylan and Ben, at what point did you guys figure out or find out that it was happening? I'm sure you get the notifications on your phone, but when did you guys start to notice? And I know you guys didn't watch. So for me, like I started to think that he can really do it once he got through the sixth inning and it just seemed like he was in control of everything. But when did you guys kind of find out about it? And not to mention, you guys brought up how pitchers don't go deep into games. He threw a Maddox too, ninety-nine pitches, so very efficient with his with his pitching, averaging eleven pitches an inning. Yeah, so I kind of found out gradually. I got especially like being a Yankees fan. I got the ESPN notifications pretty early on. Um, after the fifth inning, I got a like a perfect game watch alert. But I get those probably close to like once every 10 days, I'd say just for a pitcher that's, you know, doing really well to open up their start. So I didn't really think anything of it. I just kind of thought like, Oh, like this is just another, like an excellent start, like good for Herman, like to go through five and perfect, but I didn't expect him to remain perfect. And then I'd say really around the eighth inning when there was about six batters left was when I was like, Oh, hold up now. Let me uh, keep an eye on this and start watching things. And, and, you know, I'm glad that I did because of the way it played out, obviously. Yeah, same as Dylan. I get those alerts, you know, when someone's perfect through five. But I, I would say for me, I didn't really start to take notice until maybe inning seven. And I I never sit there and think, oh, maybe this could happen. Maybe this can happen just because I don't want to. I, you know, I know I'm not even broadcasting. I don't want to be any kind of jinx. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it. If it happens, it happens. I get those notifications too. I though, however, I have MLB TV. So whenever I get those notifications, if I'm not doing anything or if I'm playing video games like John, I'll throw it up on my laptop and watch and see if it actually happens. Because every time it does, you kind of feel like a connection to the fan base that it happens to. I remember watching John Means one for Baltimore a couple years ago. And I was I always really liked John Means. I know Baltimore's a rival, but I haven't really felt any animosity towards them since really the early parts of the 2010s. And it's just something that it's just nice to watch when Joe Musgrove got his with the with the Padres, the first one in their history. 
you kind of feel like you're watching baseball history. Now, those are no hitters, not perfect games, but the point still stands where you always kind of tune in to see something that doesn't typically happen. And it just it's just what makes baseball so great is that anything can happen on any day and anybody could be perfect. But moving on, Shohei Otani, he's got 31 home runs right now, and he's kind of outpacing Judge from 2022. Do you you guys think he can do it? I'll give my thoughts, you know, kind of after you guys. But can he actually top Judge's 62 home runs, set a new American League record, and kind of ruin himself in the eyes of all Yankee fans because Yankee fans felt Judge's run was so magical. Yeah, so Otani's clearly been just been absolutely going berserk, I'd say, over the last two weeks. And can he break the record? Absolutely. We know he has the talent to do so. There's just so much that goes into it. You have to stay healthy. You can't go through cold spells. And for Otani to be focusing on pitching at the same time, like obviously he's a great hitter and a great pitcher at the same time, but you know, the pressure is going to start mounting if we get to that point the same way that it did for Judge, where every trip to the plate, if it wasn't a home run, it was a failure. That combined with having to pitch as a starting pitcher for a team, all with staying healthy, it's going to be a long road. Um, Obviously, as a Yankees fan, I hope it doesn't happen. But if it does, I'll celebrate Shohei Otani for the fantastic player that he is. And, you know, we'll see if it happens. Yeah, I think... You know, while I do think he can catch him, I think he's definitely capable of it. You've seen the power that he brings. I think that with the fact that he pitches and he pitches as well as he does, there may not be that same kind of pressure that Judge felt. You may not see people, you know, yeah, they'll be looking for that chase for 60 or, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, they're they're not going to be so disappointed because at the same time, if he's going out there and throwing seven shutout innings and striking out 12, you're they're not going to be mad about it. They're not going to be upset. They're not going to think, oh, you know, what what's he doing? He's not doing it for us anymore. He's shutting it down when it gets tough. Like if you see the pitching starts to take a hit, if you see the home runs dip at the same time, then all of a sudden, yeah, maybe the pressure's getting to him. But Otani is so good at so many different things that I think that alone eases the pressure off because even if he's not necessarily hitting the home runs, he's still going out there and shutting you down on the mound. I think Otani could definitely break the record this year. I mean, he definitely has like the skill set and, you know, the power to do so. The only thing... I'm be worried about is that because he does he does he pitches and he also hits is that he might you know run out of gas towards the end per se and maybe just you know come up a little short there so I that's the one thing I'd be worried about but I think you know barring injuries I think he definitely could break it I think again he has a chance I don't think he does it I think he ends up hitting probably like 54 to 56 home runs that later stretch of the season is going to be brutal for him because people will be pitching around him so much and it's just going to be tough for him. We saw with judge hitting 60 and he took like two or three weeks before he was able to hit 61 then 62. People just didn't want to pitch to him. And if the angels are in a pennant race, he's going to be even pressing more. If the angels are looking to make the playoffs, he's going to be pressing and people will be throwing around him because they don't want to lose to somebody as dangerous as Otani. Trout, 
albeit it's a very good player, he's not having as good of a year as a trap typically does. So you might rather face trap than Otani, which is, you know, insane to say, but Otani could do it. I don't think he does. I think he's just got too much on his plate. Somebody else, though, that's kind of trying to run down history, Luis Arias, we were talking not so long ago about he was hitting 400 entering uh, June, right? Now we're entering July, and his average has dipped all the way down to 389. Just real quick, do you guys think this is a pipe dream? you think he can get it back up to 400, or as time goes on, is he going to dip below 350 and keep going down and down? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to call it a pipe dream because obviously he has the talent, but to just bat at that level consistently over a course of a season. I mean, there's a reason that it was being talked about as as rare as it was. I would not bet on him to do so. I think he could very well finish around the 340, 350 mark, and that's still something to be celebrated. But, you know, 400, I'm not sure if it's a reality at this point. I agree with Dylan. It's so hard to do. And, you know, even if he was hitting like 425 right now, I would still say it is so hard to do because you have to finish the season without basically going into a slump of any kind at all. You need to get a hit in two out of every five at bats. Guess what? If you're going two for five every day, that's a great, great game. So, you know, to do that over the course of a season, it's just too difficult. There's a reason why they say baseball is a game that is made to make you fail. I mean, you would I would like to see him hit for 400 on the season because it's like that doesn't happen all the time. But I don't think he can keep it up. I think he's probably going to finish around probably like the 350 mark, maybe 340. But I just don't think it's possible. It's not possible. It's not probable. I don't think it's going to happen, but the fact that we're even talking about it is just incredible for him because he's giving it a chance. The Mets made a trade, bring back relievers Chris Flexen, and in addition, Trevor Gott. And from Seattle, they're going to send over left-handed pitcher Zach Muckenheim. Ben, do you know, uh, how do you feel about this trade for uh so for Muck, trading away Muck and Hearn and bringing back Flexen, who was a starter, I believe, for the Mets, in addition to Gott. Yeah, I mean, look, it's exciting to see Chris Flexen back just because that's a blast from the past. I believe that's 2016, maybe even 17, when Flexen was uh, debuting for the Mets. Hard-throwing guy. I'm pretty sure he came straight up from either like double-A or some, uh, not triple-A. He definitely skipped that level at first. The Mets brought him up too early. He ended up having some solid uh, solid years in Seattle where he, you know, he threw some good innings for them. He's not going to light the world on fire. Gott's a solid arm. And, you know, Muckenren, you know, he's – he. he I, I'm not upset seeing him go. It, it wasn't – he wasn't one of those pieces that's solving the puzzle right now. And uh, I, I do have a couple stories to share with you guys from uh, from work. I work at a family-owned, I guess you can call it a pawn shop, jewelry store. What we do is we buy, we don't really sell, but we buy from the public, you know, bullion, good and golds and stuff, watches, sports memorabilia. And the reason I'm saying this is because last week at work, I'm sitting there by myself, chilling. It's a Saturday, easy day. And the first guy that comes in right after we open, turns out he was the an ex-equipment manager for the New York Mets. He was there for 30 years. 
And he had some stories to tell me. Told me that, you know, Lee Mazzilli is his best friend. Mike Piazza, bit of a sweetheart, right? And that Al Leiter, not such a great guy. Todd Huntley met his wife in rehab. Also told me that Doc Gooden, the middle of games, he would order Peter Luger's, a very famous New York City steakhouse, and eat steaks in the middle of games in the dugout. Now, this is the 80s Mets, 90s Mets. This stuff isn't surprising, but just to get confirmation from somebody, it's kind of funny. And then shortly after he left, another guy came in. Very New York name, right? His name was Don, Donnie, right? Current first cousin of a current New York Yankee, right? Say, shares the same last name with this guy. Came in, sold me some stuff. We were talking, even sent me a link. Friends and family tickets to the New York Yankees. So you get them at a severe discount, select games, select sections. Not that I'm complaining, but it's pretty cool when Anthony Rizzo's cousin comes in, starts talking, you get along, you know, doing some business together, and he sends you a link. Also says, you know, if he finds anything else, he'll come in and maybe bring in some uh, memorabilia to, to share from you from his cousin. He was showing me pictures of the two of them, was telling me how uh, Rizzo as a kid, he would be he's that type of kid that on the trampoline, all he was doing is backflips. And it's kind of funny now because, you know, his big issue has been his back for his whole career. So the fact that his whole thing as a kid was backflips, I felt was kind of ironic. But to me, it was a pretty cool day. You had the Mets equipment manager plus Rizzo's cousin get, giving me uh, an opportunity to get some cheap tickets where what I do pay also goes to the Anthony Rizzo Foundation. So when I do go to games and take them up on that, I'll be donating to a good cause as well. Yeah, Corey, honestly, that that's quite a day. That's definitely that's definitely a good day for a baseball lifer like yourself. And I'm sure there are a lot of old timers listening that are a little jealous right now. I gotta ask, Corey, with uh either either of the two gentlemen, did you did you bring up your hatred of the pitch clock? And did they agree with you if you did? I didn't because I'm at work. I'm trying to be a little professional. You know, I can only uh, I can only talk so much about sports before my cousin, who's my boss, who absolutely hates baseball and sports, you know, gets a little annoyed at me. Hey, so Corey, I, outsider yeah. sports is always working. <laughs> I got tickets, man. I worked my magic. But hopefully he comes back. Some cool stuff. I did not mention the pitch clock because why would I waste a breath on that? But let's get into some more uh, active baseball stuff. The all-star rosters were announced. I don't know if you guys saw it. The American League starters, Jonah Heim at catcher, Yandy Diaz, Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager, Josh Dung, first through third base. Your starting outfield is Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, Randy Rosarena. DH is... Shohei Otani, their infield reserves, Bo Bichette, Jose Ramirez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Whit Merrifield. Catchers as the reserve, Adley Rutschman, the rookie, and Salvador Perez. Outfield reserves, Luis Robert, Austin Hayes, Adolis Garcia, Brent Rooker, and Jordan Alvarez. And then for the pitchers, 
Shane McClanahan, Garrett Cole, Kevin Gausman, Framber Valdez, Nathan Eovaldi, Sonny Gray, Michael Lorenzen, Luis Castillo, relievers, Felix Batista, Yenier Cano, Kenley Jansen, and Emmanuel Classe. On the National League side, Sean Murphy's your catcher, first through third, Freddie Freeman, Luis Arias, Orlando Arcia, and Nolan Arenado. Outfield, Ronald Cunha Jr., Corbin Carroll, and Mookie Betts, D.H., J.D. Martinez. And the infield is Matt Olson, Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley, Dansby Swanson, and Pete Alonzo. Those are the reserves. Reserve catchers, Will Smith and Elias Diaz. Your outfield reserves, Nick Castellanos, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Juan Soto, and Jorge Soler. Your starting pitchers, Marcus Stroman, Zach Gallen, Mitch Keller, Clayton Kershaw, Bryce Elder, Spencer Strider, Justin Steele, and Josiah Gray. And the relievers, Alexis Diaz, Camilo Duvall, Josh Hader, and Devin Williams. Now, do you guys feel that anybody I named is undeserving? Plus, anybody out there kind of snubs? I know we've talked Fernando Tatis Jr., Wander Franco, any Yankees relievers. Plus, does Ellie De La Cruz deserve to be an all-star? He's only been up a month, but he's kind of let the baseball world on fire. What do you guys think? It's the first half, so it should be a cumulative first half award. Now, obviously, you don't want to knock anybody for injuries. You know, injuries happen. You're going to miss a few games here and there. Guy like Ellie De La Cruz, he's missed two months. I mean, you you can't be an all-star. It's the same thing with, like, MVP. You can't win MVP if you miss three months of the season. How are you that valuable if you missed half of the season? And, you know, I know all-star game is not, you know, an MVP award, but at the same time, what has Ellie De La Cruz done? What body of work has he put up that shows he's deserving of being an all-star? And he simply just doesn't have that body of work yet. Now, when it comes to guys who, you know, got snubbed, 100% it's Wander Franco is the biggest one. I mean, this guy, I think he's been the best shortstop in the American League. He should be the starter. He's not even on the roster. I find that very, very horrible. I am not a fan. I am very upset with the fact that, you know, that's the way that that ended up playing out. But at the same time, oh, well, Wander Franco gets to take a little bit of a mini vacation I wouldn't say I hate the rosters. I think, you know, they overall did a good job of, you know, putting guys in certain positions, you know, making sure each team had their representative in terms of the pitchers for the national league. I think maybe you didn't have to do both Strider and elder. I'm not, I'm not completely sold on Bryce Elder, although he has had a strong start to the season and, you know, he's a good, good shot for rookie of the year. So you can't really knock that one there. Over on the American League side, I honestly think Kenley Jansen's done. But again, what he's done, you can't really argue with it. So I don't really have too many arguments when it comes to the actual rosters because, yeah, you know what? You're going to have some snubs, but ultimately, usually the guys that get into this game are worthy and deserving. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Ben, in terms of Wander Franco being a snub. I mean, you know, Shout out Whit Merrifield. He's having a really good season as a utility guy for Toronto. But Wander Franco should be in over him. And I agree with you that he should be starting over Corey Seager. Um, you know, Wander Franco, statistically, every way you look at it, is having a better year than Whit Merrifield. And, you know, like this is from the Just Baseball show. So I want to give credit to them for highlighting this stat. But if you look at Whit Merrifield's F4 of a 1.2, and Matt Olson 
another all-star of a 2.4 and combine them, Wander Franco's is still higher at a 3.7. Wander Franco is contributing to wins for the team with the best record in all of the MLB and deserves to be an all-star for the level of play that he's had, in my opinion. And to answer your question, Corey, about Ellie De La Cruz, you know, I agree with Ben. I think the body of work isn't strong enough. Um, I think he'll have many more opportunities to make all-star games in his career. So I don't think it's a huge bummer that he's not in there this year. I wish that um, there was some form of maybe, I know that they have like their uh, AAA showcase, but some event that Ellie could compete in um, similar to like a skills competition like the NBA has. Um, But maybe we'll see that in years to come. In addition to the All-Star game, we do have the Home Run Derby, which we'll talk a little bit about more next week. The field's not complete. So does everybody have, like, somebody that they want to actually see in the Home Run Derby that might not actually participate, but somebody you think uh, will put on a good show? Just because, I, I mean, you know, we saw it last year. It didn't really end well. But give me Nelson Cruz. Let me let me see Nelson Cruz at it at the Derby again. The guy still has mammoth power. Anybody else have somebody they think uh, would just be fun to watch in a home run derby? For me, I know Stanton won't do it this year. I always feel like Stanton puts on a good show. Uh, I, I just think his home runs are just the absolute best, just absolute missiles. So him in, a, in the home run derby to me is just always fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the obvious answer has to be Shohei Otani. Um, I get why he's not doing it if he chooses not to, but, you know, that is perhaps baseball's biggest star. He's currently leading the league in home runs, and, you know, the crack of the bat when Otani hits one out is definitely one to behold. This might be a little biased, but I want to see Kyle Schwarber. I mean, his home runs always seem to be just like moonshots. I think he's, you know, just fun to watch. Yeah, but John, with Kyle Schwarber, I mean, they, they didn't he do it last year? And didn't everybody say when Schwarber does the home run derby, that's when he ends up throwing off his swing? I don't know. I don't even think the Phillies really have a realistic shot. Or they've been going pretty far in the playoff this year, so eh, I don't care too much. But, you know, maybe maybe it'll be the year maybe he goes in and maybe he doesn't throw a swing off. I mean, he's he was off to a slow start this year, and so I don't know. Somebody else funny, though, to throw in there. Why not get a Luisa Rise in there, right? He's hitting all these singles. Let's see how he does trying to hit home runs. That could be a pretty funny thing to watch. Now, though, let's get into our studs and duds. For me, my stud, we talked about him earlier. Yankee starting pitcher, Domingo Herman, perfect game. Nine innings, went 1-0, obviously, in that win. One complete game, one shutout, nine Ks, all in that perfect game. Just a marvel of a week for him. Also had the most fantasy points by almost 100 in terms of fantasy point production. So just a great week for him. My dud, Johan Oviedo, Pirate starting pitcher, Went 0-1 in five innings, gave up nine hits, eight earned runs, three walks, just one strikeout. I believe I did stream him for that start, so I might be a little salty on top of that. Uh, Ben, who do you have as your stud and who's your dud? I'm going to go in a direction that, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've chosen him as a stud this year, and it's kind of amazing to me, and that's Shohei Otani. I mean, who who better to be the stud than the guy who – 
maybe, I don't know, just his offensive line alone would have been good enough for this honor. He went 10 for 24 on the week, seven RBIs, and six home runs. Oh, by the way, sprinkle in a six and a third inning start where he picked up the win, allowing just four hits and two walks, one earned run, and 10 strikeouts. This guy's on another planet. Shohei Otani, my stud. Now, my dud. We're going to go down to San Diego, Xander Bogarts. And this is a guy who we haven't shown enough of a spotlight on for how poor of a season he's having. Five for 24 this past week, just one RBI, two walks. You hear him express his frustrations with San Diego and the Padres. Clearly, things aren't going well. Things aren't going right. And the two teams that spent the most money, the San Diego Padres and the New York Mets, Look at what's going on. It's been nothing but disappointment. I don't know. Maybe something's going on here. Yeah, Ben. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Xander. Um, all the time that he spent in Boston, I wasn't able to really root for him as much as I do now. But he's on my fantasy team, so it hurts. But another guy on my fantasy team is my stud for the week, J.D. Martinez. I'm going back-to-back like Drake here. And that's because J.D. Martinez roughly had the same exact week batted 300 had three home runs eight rbis again dude's playing on another level and deserves to be in the all-star game and my dud adam wainwright um absolutely got destroyed by the houston astros couldn't even make it two innings before giving up six earned runs been a real bad season for wainwright as a whole maybe he should have hung it up with uh yachty and pujos last year my stud this week is matt olson he had 12 hits, four home runs, 11 RBIs, and batted 414 this past week. Absolutely amazing. And my dud this week, who's been pretty much almost bad all year now, Luis Severino. He pitched four innings, gave up nine hits, seven earned runs, three walks, two home runs. It got two strikeouts and took the L home. Just absolutely terrible. And I don't even know if he can pull it together this season. All right, guys. I think it's time to talk about our teams in addition let's talk about our rankings all right ben my first question is for you any teams that kind of missed the mark in your rankings and also why did you switch atlanta and tampa bay this week what did atlanta do for you to get them to switch and then lastly june's over give me some insight in what's going on in metland and if the rest of the season could be salvageable Yeah, we'll start with the Mets because, I mean, look, the rest of the season, it can be salvageable, but they need to go on a torrid run, similar to what they did in the summer of 2015, which, by the way, they didn't face nearly a deficit that they do now. The Braves are unbelievable. You're not catching them for the division. The wild card, I believe they're 10 games back. I don't think anybody in the two wild card era, like the two wild card team per league era, had ever overcome a 10 game deficit for the wild card when they had faced it by July 1st. So it just doesn't seem feasible. Now, teams that didn't make my top 10, I have three that were close and knocking on the door, but honestly, I'm not upset that they're not in there. I do think that they're 11, 12 and 13 in the my rankings personally right now. It's the Angels, the Toronto Blue Jays and the San Francisco Giants. All three of those teams, they're playoff caliber teams. They're knocking on the door. Didn't have the best weeks. They're not quite in there. A couple good weeks could get them there. As far as Atlanta and Tampa Bay, Atlanta's 9-1 and one in their last 10 games. They're just one game behind the Tampa Bay Rays for the best record in baseball. Look, Atlanta's on fire, and I think that they are the best team in baseball right now. 
All right, John, let's move to you. How come you put the Dodgers over the Diamondbacks? Why'd you rank Toronto? And also, what's going on in Philly now that we're halfway done with the season? So I'll start off with the Dodgers and Diamondbacks. It's not like I put the Dodgers heads over heels way before the Diamondbacks. I had Dodgers at six, Diamondbacks at seven. And just it's more of like I just kind of like the Dodgers a little bit better than the Diamondbacks, you know, in the past couple of weeks. So I just just had to sneak him in a little bit of head because like almost after a certain ranking, like, you know, after like the fifth ranking, everything's almost like a tie for me. So just kind of go off a little bit of a bias and – I, I just like the Dodgers a little bit better that last week. Now for the Blue Jays, they've been play, they haven't been playing particularly great, but they haven't been playing particularly bad. It was more of a kind of a superstitious thing almost to kind of put keep them in there because I didn't really have another team there. I wanted to put the Phillies in at ten, but it seems like every time I rank the Phillies in our rankings, they just completely fall off and start doing bad again. And just every every single time, every single time I do it, they just seem to start going on a losing streak. So I trying to stay away from it and jumping the gun with that. And in the Phillies been halfway, you know, done with the, you know, talk about the Phillies being halfway done with the season. It seems like they started to pull it together from the bad start they had. And they're kind of around the same, the same place where they were last year around the same time. I, you know, they still have seen that problems with the pitching and sometimes with the hitting a little bit. It seems like their biggest problem may be the outfield and stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, when Harper needs to come back and get in first base, and I think that should help them maybe alleviate some of the fielding problems. All right, Dylan, now for you. How come you rank the Marlins so low in your list? Why'd you rank the Yankees in general? And we're halfway through the year with the Yankees. Rodon's coming back. Can the Yankees make a legit run or... Are they kind of treading water till the end of the year for another winning season, but not much fun with it? Yeah, so we touched on this last episode, and I still view the Yankees in the same light. I think that they have the potential to be the Philadelphia Phillies of this year. We've yet to see this team be healthy. I don't think that they're necessarily going to pass Tampa in the regular season. They might not even pass Baltimore. But this is a team that's on pace to be a wild card team as things stand. I think that they will get in there. The roster's good enough, especially once healthy. Rodon set to come back July 7th, so mark your calendars for that. And yeah, the the team when healthy is dangerous and is a World Series contender. I will stand on that hill until we see them and, you know, they lose to the Astros at some point, likely. But when it comes to the Marlins, um, I wouldn't say that I have them ranked too low. I have them at nine. You know, there's a lot of good teams in this league, and I, I, I personally go by a tier-based ranking in my head of top of the top and then um, go down levels from there. And they're right in that same level there for me with the Astros, Yankees, and Marlins all in a row. I just personally prefer the Astros and Yankees roster. All right, now let's get into our weekly series highlight. For me, I'm taking Cincinnati at Milwaukee, a battle of the NL Central. Ellie De La Cruz is still must-watch TV. And honestly, somebody has to win that division. And I think this game is a, at least an early decider. This series is an early decider of who that could be between two teams uh, that are kind of evenly matched. Dylan, what about you? What's your weekly series highlight? Yeah, so I have the Philadelphia Phillies traveling to the Miami Marlins this weekend. Uh, it's going to be a tough week for Philadelphia. They're playing both Florida teams. I believe John's going to touch on the Rays matchup a little bit later. But 
this Marlins matchup, first off, these two teams are battling out for second in the division right now. And anybody that's watched Phillies baseball knows that when they play the Marlins, especially in Miami, it's a struggle. We'll see how the Phillies handle it. Yeah, I don't know why the Phillies struggle in Miami, but even when the Marlins weren't good, the Phillies do. Now, the series I'm going to highlight, and it's a team that has struggled a bit, but not necessarily in the past in this building, and it's the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Yankees. Baltimore, when they're good, when they're bad, sometimes, I don't know what it is, they can figure to be a thorn in the Yankees' side. Not so much in the Bronx, though. The Yankees usually take care of business. I'm excited to see how the Orioles do this is a new look team this is a new attitude team going into new york they should have the edge you know they should be the better team in terms of you know what everyone expects especially if you're Corey, who's down on the yankees all the time i think this should just be an exciting matchup between two really good teams in the american league my weekly highlight like dylan said is going to be the philadelphia phillies at the you know traveling to face the tampa bay rays I mean, you have the Tampa Bay Rays who have been pretty much top team almost all year and stuff, but they've kind of fallen off a little bit. And the Phillies are starting to figure stuff out and, you know, actually play up to their potential a little bit more than, you know, how we thought at the beginning of the season. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they can, you know, play up and, you know, maybe win a series against a really good Rays team. All right. Well, that'll do it here. That's been an episode of the Outsider Sports Baseball Podcast. Search us up, OutsiderSports.com, Twitter, OutsiderSports3, YouTube, TikTok. Search up OutsiderSports, will pop up. But that's going to do it here. Dylan, Ben, John, and Corey, keep tuning in and have a great 4th of July.